Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. I'm Sarah Gabler, filling in for Douglas Haynes. The weather is no longer a safe topic at my family gatherings. Maybe you noticed this as I did a few years ago. I was sitting around a dinner table with a few relatives when I realized that I could not retreat into the calm banality of talking about the temperature outside or the chance of rain. The weather now ranked on a list of topics alongside presidential candidates and abortion access that could quickly incite aggressive disagreement. Or maybe your experience isn't like mine. Maybe you and yours have been on the same page about climate science since ExxonMobil first began denying global warming back in the 80s. But no matter where you stand or how congenial your holiday dinners are, it's not surprising to anyone that, in short, the weather has become political. That's why today on A Public Affair, we're talking about the weather and climate change. Joining me today are two scientists with backgrounds in meteorology, and they're here to discuss their roles in communicating climate science on broadcast television. Let me tell you a little more about our guest before we dive into the conversation. Calling in from LA today is Christopher Gloniner. Chris is an atmospheric scientist, communications professional, and certified, consult- certified consulting meteorologist He has worked in newsrooms across the U.S., including in Albany, New York, Saginaw, Michigan, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Boston, Massachusetts. He was chief meteorologist at KCCI-TV in Des Moines, Iowa, before he left that job to start a consulting career. Chris has written about his career change in an essay for the Boston Globe titled, I Spoke About Climate Change as a TV Meteorologist, Then Came the Death Threat. Chris has earned three Emmys, two NBC Gem Awards, and two Wisconsin Broadcasters Association Awards in recognition of his various news coverage throughout his career. Currently, he serves as a senior scientist in climate and risk communication at the Woods Hole Group. Our second guest today is Madison-based meteorologist Bob Lindmeyer. Bob is the senior chief meteorologist at WKOW-TV, where he has worked since 1989 and where you've probably seen him delivering weather reports. Bob is a member of the American Meteorological Society Station Science Committee and has received the Wisconsin Silver Circle Lifetime Achievement Award by the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. In addition to talking to his viewers about climate change during his broadcast, he also has given numerous presentations to schools, civic organizations, and faith-based groups. He's a member of the Citizen, Citizens Climate Lobby, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization focused on national policies to address solutions to climate change. Christopher Gladiner and Bob Lindmeyer, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Sarah. Great. Well, let's dive in. I want to talk to you both about what it's like to be a meteorologist. What is it like for you to cover the daily weather beat and what are some common misconceptions about reporting on the weather? Bob, we can start with you and then go to Chris. Yeah, um, for me, reporting the weather, um, I've been doing it for a long time. I've been doing it for 40 years. I'm not doing it on a daily basis anymore. As of January, I went to a vacation fill-in um, position. But um just with time, as I've been on the air over over that time span, I just became more and more aware of climate change and its impact. Ten years ago, it really wasn't on my radar, but uh, as the last ten years have elapsed, it became more and more on my radar to the point where five years ago, I decided I really had to do something about it and start speaking out about climate change. Actually, more 
about six, seven years ago now, time flies. But um, so I started off uh, talking about it on air, was not a comfortable subject for me initially. Um, it was hard. It was, I was very nervous doing it. It's not, it's not in my comfort zone. And that's one thing that's challenging, I think, for a lot of broadcast meteorologists. It's, it's not an area of our, in our expertise necessarily. We're worried about the near term, the next seven days. Talking about climate scientists in this long term, climate science in the long term is a whole different animal. So you just have to get comfortable talking about it, which is uh, not an easy thing to do. Um, our thing is talking to people, communicating fairly uh, subjects that are not easy to comprehend. Talking about the weather, what's making the weather happen is not the easiest thing to do in three minutes. But that's what we specialize in doing. And we've had to learn to also talk about climate science in a brief period of time as well. Uh, it's been a learning process, um, it's, but over time, I've become more and more comfortable with it. I've had pushback on the air, uh, or not uh, on my on-air work, I've had pushback, primarily through email. But I, over time, even that pushback for me became less and less. I'm fortunate that I'm in a market that accepts climate science uh, for the most part. So unlike Chris's experience, um, I, uh, I haven't really had any, uh, any attacks on me personally, uh, but um, it's still been a challenging thing. I just keep in mind that only 10% of all people are climate denialists. And when I get pushback, I'm just reminding myself, you know, you're just part of that 10%. I've got the other 90% that I worry about. And I think, Bob, to build on his point, that last point especially, that 10%, it is an insignificant number, but those are the people that it is not worth your time engaging with. But the other 90%, you can, and you can effectively have a good conversation. I had that aha moment back in 2016, 2017, when I was covering a lot of major hurricanes in the country for NBC. I was sent down to the Gulf Coast, to Texas, to Florida, seeing these storms intensively, not rapidly intensify, uh, dumped copious amounts of rain. I started asking a lot of questions. And that's when I brought to station management during my time in Boston, the idea of talking about climate change and covering it on a regular basis. And there was support, even in Boston, there was a little bit of pushback as Bob said, it was less and less. I think once people got accustomed to it, but then I did the shift, uh, a career shift out to Iowa where I was chief meteorologist. I went from weekends to being chief, which is a promotion in this industry. But the main reason I took this because it was an opportunity to fill a void to talk about climate change in a part of the country, which desperately needs it. I mean, heck, their economy is largely based on agriculture and there really isn't uh, an industry that is so connected to meteorology and climate science. But the pushback because of the political divide was intense. It did reach that peak, uh, not this past summer, but the summer prior when I did receive a, a, a threat, a death threat for my coverage. And it was recently that I just heard the, uh, the, the police phone call, the interview. And it was fascinating in, in kind of looking into the mind of somebody that thought, I'm going to email the local meteorologist uh, just a, a, a series of harassing emails and, and end it with a threat, thinking he was doing nothing wrong, that he was just exercising his, his freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. and, but that kind of gives you a, a look, a perspective into that, that 10%, uh, that they think it's okay to, to push back. And, and that was the real difficulty I had in covering climate change. In Boston, yes, a minor pushback, but in Iowa, it reached a breaking point for me. Um, thanks, y'all. You're listening to Chris Gloninger and Bob Lindmeyer talking about the weather, and this is a public affair on WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Gabler. Um, I hear you both saying that there's an element to climate reporting that is political, like, you know, getting the support of your station and listeners to do this kind of work. Um, and then there's the scientific element of, as Bob, you were saying, shifting from covering something near term to something long term. And I'd like to hear a little bit more from both of you about that shift, um, covering the weather 
to covering the climate. And the question is, like, how do you help your audiences understand the relationship of the weather to the climate? How do you find that? How do you find that work? Yeah, I'll just tackle it first, uh, I guess, and let Chris follow. Um, but just to, just to touch on you, you mentioned the political aspect of this, which is unfortunately very strong um, in our daily lives and as broadcast meteorologists in particular. Um, I'm fortunate in that my station, WKOW-TV, is entirely on board 100% on me talking about climate change. Where they draw the line, though, is making it in any way political. So I just have to stay in the science, which I'm perfectly fine on doing. Um, what I'd like to be able to do is talk out, talk more about bills that are in Congress that are, uh, I think, helpful in, in, in this transition to renewable energy. But I, I, I cannot go there on TV because there's that political aspect to it. So, um, but talking about on air, talking about uh, climate science is kind of like talking about any subject. I mean, we're educators. Broadcast meteorologists are literally the, the station scientists. So whenever the uh, newsroom has a question about science in general, especially in env environmental science, they come to us. So we are that scientist. We, as I mentioned before, we're trained to be educators. We, we're trained about explaining not only what the forecast is, but why is that forecast like that? What, what are the processes going on that um, are contributing to that, that week's weather? So talking about climate science is, is really a, a, a lot in our wheelhouse. The biggest thing is just getting educated on climate science. As a broadcast meteorologist, uh, that was not my area of expertise. So there's a lot of self-education that has to go on. And you have to be very confident in talking because you're talking in snippets, 30 minutes, 30 seconds a minute. So when you um, talk about climate science, you have to be concise and you have to get your point across in a very short period of time. And it's taken me time. It's been a long learning process, but I finally, I've gotten to the point where I'm pretty comfortable in doing that. I think as a station scientist, what I do see are a lot of meteorologists that are comfortable talking about a meteor shower, about a volcanic eruption or earthquake, a tsunami. And as Bob mentioned, there, there is an element of having to really dive into the science and, and keep yourself up to date on the latest research of what's happening in the world of climate science. And as meteorologists, we have that myopic view of what's happening in the short term, and maybe seven to 10 days, depending upon how long of an extended forecast you have. For a while, meteorologists, I, at least I feel, this is an observational um, point I'm trying to make, meteorologists may not have been as quick to be on board with climate science because you're taking such a, a, a finite look, that myopic view of what's happening in the next week as opposed to looking at the larger trends. But to circle back to my original point, if meteorologists are comfortable talking about those issues, it's something that I encourage that they bring up climate science because there are a lot more common connections between meteorology and climate science than there are with uh, geography, geology. So if you're talking on that, you really should find a way to, to tie in climate coverage. You have to do it concise. Uh, as Bob mentioned, you're not you know, at a three-minute weathercast. You can't talk three minutes about it. And you do have to stay away from the politics of it. And that is what I tried to do during my time in Iowa. But even showing a trend, even showing the data uh, gets a reaction visceral response with some people, which is unfortunate. Um, and in my case, I think my station had, uh, I give them credit for wanting to bring somebody in to talk about climate change. But when there was pushback, the first thing I was told to do is to stop mentioning the word climate change because it's so polarized mm -hmm. uh, and, to, and, and to dial back how much I was covering it. And I don't think that that's the, the proper response. Um, <clears throat> you have to be creative, but taking it out of a newscast is not, is not the way to do it. 
Yeah. And Chris, I, I've listened to some of your reports and I think you do get creative with language. You know, sometimes um, it, it might be expedient to not say climate change. And, and how, how do you shift the language so that it might be a topic that folks would listen to? I prided myself in finding creative ways during my time in Iowa. When I was seeing that pushback, essentially, uh, initially, I should say, um, I found ways to use almost conservative talking points. For example, when uh, a large uh, majority of the power is is generated through wind energy, uh, that's energy independence. Energy costs moving from Boston to Iowa for a house twice the size were half the cost. And that's because it was cheap energy. It's renewable energy. So talk about that and, and call it energy independence because we're not having to um, outsource this, this source of energy. So that's one way. And then fiscal responsibility. And this is a way that Bob said, talking about the bills, the Inflation Reduction Act, just one example of how investments can create green jobs, they can create a boost to our infrastructure, our climate infrastructure, which is critical because we are now seeing a billion dollar disaster every two to two and a half weeks. Letting those go unchecked is fiscally irresponsible. For every dollar spent on adaptation and mitigation, you save $7 in recovery costs. That's fiscal responsibility. So using terms like that, I think is really helpful in getting the message across that this isn't a political issue. It just makes sense even if you don't want to take the politics uh, into account, when it comes to money, from a money standpoint, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. You're listening to A Public Affair on Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM. Our guests today are meteorologist Christopher Gloninger and Bob Lindmeyer. If you'd like to join the conversation, please call 608-256-2001. So climate change is here. We know this. Um, we could think about the, the climate news this week um, or the weather this last week. Um, the erratic weather patterns like the first ever recorded tornado in Wisconsin in February. We could point to the first time recorded global temperatures have exceeded 1.5 degrees Celsius over a 12 month period. Um, these are the numbers. But I also want to talk to you both about facts and feelings. You know, feelings play a crucial role in how people understand the climate crisis or how we communicate the inf information about the climate crisis. And I'm sure you both will agree that you can't simply present folks with data and expect hearts and minds to be changed. And that's true for folks even who agree with climate scientists. I think sometimes it takes a personal connection and sometimes personal tragedy for people to act on that knowledge. So I want to hear from both of you. How do you balance facts and feelings in your reporting and in your public lives? Uh, yeah, again, I'll touch on it first and let Chris follow. But um, there, there are things that we can do, including just localizing what we're talking about. Everything there's so much happening on the worldwide scale, the national scale that you can talk about. But what really touches people is when the weather and the climate affects them personally. So I talk a lot here in Wisconsin about our winters. Uh, how our, our winter season has changed the most of the four seasons. It's almost five degrees warmer, our average wintertime temperature, than it was just 50 years ago. And th this is having huge effects economically on our state. Ice fishermen can't be on the ice as long. Um, and locally, we've had a lot of big events that have been canceled that normally are on the ice. <clears throat> there are also things like... Um, cross-country skiing. That's what my sport is. I've been, I've been able to be out there for one weekend so far this winter. It's kind of deceiving because like last winter, we had a lot of snow and we had a big snow event in uh, earlier in, in our winter here, but the snow melts so quickly. And so you just don't have time to enjoy it. Downhill skiing um, and also uh, snowmobiling. When you talk to people in those terms, then they can relate and they can say, oh yeah, you know, it is different. Um, I can't ice fish as long as I, I could years ago. So I think that that's a real important thing is to tie in local effects 
uh, and how that is impacting people. That, then they could, that resonates, I think. I agree. And for in parts of the country, there are certainly ways the climate that climate change isn't as apparent, right? Uh, and even in Iowa, when you have big droughts that are lasting months to years, maybe you see some fields that are that are browning up a bit. But when you live on a coast, and and this is when you take the politics out of it, it's kind of a bipartisan issue, right? When you have uh, congress congressional districts that are seeing daytime flooding on a regular basis, it's a hard thing to ignore. And those are things that are, again, happening right in front of us. Uh, so to bring it home, you can talk a little bit about how they've had to genetically modify corn to be grown in the corn belt. <laughs> I mean, to keep up with the changing climate, that is one thing that they're doing actively to make sure that and maybe you can get two, uh, two rounds of crops in because of a, a longer growing season, but there are uh, negative consequences to that. And then talking about how some of the bigger picture things like wildfires that are burning across Canada or out in California affect air quality in the central part of the country. So I think those are ways that even if you're not seeing those impacts that Bob was mentioning with ice fishing and snow amounts on the uh, during the winter, if, if you're not seeing the visual consequences, you can see them uh, even if it's kind of a fringe effect, and those are important connections to to draw and to bring to your viewers. Yeah, something I hear um, from folks I know is like people using their bodies to kind of tell the weather like, oh, it just does, it just feels like warmer than it should be today, you know, in, in February. And um, my, my granny used to tell, like re report on like, major events in our life based on hurricanes. I'm from Houston, Texas. And so like major events in my life would be in proximity to Allison or um, Rita and Katrina, these these kind of timeline touchstones that the weather created in our lives. And I'd be interested to hear from both of you just about um, how the body and memory are are related to meteorology. Uh, yeah, one thing I always caution people about is memory. Um, it's not a very good way of trying to measure uh, changes in our climate. Uh, you have to look at the data very carefully and have that presented to people, I think, to really uh, get across how, how our climate is changing. I, I, I would mention that a, a, a really effective way of relating climate to what's happening now. Uh, the, the field of climate science attribution, where climate scientists can attribute the, 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 how much climate change has affected that particular weather event. How, how much of a factor was it in that particular weather event? And they've been able to do that with hurricanes, show how much wetter that hurricane was uh, because of climate change. They can do it on a daily basis now, which I think has really been effective. For me on air, um, I use a, a lot of Climate Central information. Climate Central is a nonprofit that is just incredible in its ability to um, make graphics, give broadcast meteorologists in particular, this whole suite of, of graphics that are um, have been prepared. We can put them on air um, and we know they're accurate but they have this climate attribution graphic. So like when it's this warm out in, in Southern Wisconsin today, we're gonna to be about 45 degrees. Uh, not as warm as last week when we hit about 55, but still way above average. And you're able to show what, how much climate change has impacted that daily temperature, how much, uh, how much warmer it is because of climate change. So being able to show those daily graphics like this Oh yeah, here's why. Here's how much climate change is affecting the weather that we're having today. Is I think been just a, a big step up in being able to tell people uh, the effect of climate change on their daily lives. Uh, attribution science is going to be uh, a huge game changer, and as Bob mentioned, that climate shift index is huge. That 
that is a tool for a TB meteorologist to use. And the American Meteorological Society conference was the week before last in Baltimore. And one of the things that we talked about extensively was on attribution science and, and how quick that turnaround time is between taking an extreme weather event and tying it to climate change. Was it climate variability or was it climate change that made it worse, that made it stronger, that maybe created the event altogether? So that is pretty exciting. But also, going back to the points of memory, uh, an anecdote about anecdotes. Uh, you have to use caution, I guess, when you are talking about what your what your memory is like when it comes to, to big weather events. In my new role as a consultant, I'm working on a long-term resiliency project for a community. Uh, they're losing access to their island uh, through a causeway because it floods at high tide now. And this is just in the short term. So just keep that in mind when you're talking about maybe events that happened decades ago. Many of these families have lived here for generations. I asked them a simple question. How often does this roadway flood? And they said about four times per year. Well, I went back and looked at the tidal data. And from September 1st to January 15th, it flooded 56 times. So that's what I caution you. That's, that's my advice when you're listening to anecdotes of what weather was. It kind of take it as a as a grain of salt because you really have to look at the numbers to get a true understanding of what's happening. Because if uh, if I uh, kind of relied on their 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 uh, four times per year, this wouldn't be as uh, serious of a problem as it really is going forward. So, yeah, just to tag onto that, Chris. Well, I guess one thing that memory you can use the people's memories is it's just in very general terms. Like when I give a weather talk, which is what's great about giving a, a in-person presentation. Instead of talking about climate for 30 seconds or a minute, I can talk about it for an hour and we can really get in depth. But one thing I ask them to get them involved is, yeah, how, tell me how much, how winter has changed in, in your lifetime from when you were a kid. And it always resonates. And they say, oh yeah, it was so much colder. It was so much snowier. And in general terms, they're definitely correct on that. But it is a way to um, just connect climate change to uh, their own personal experience. So we have a caller right now on the line. We have Mike with a question about the trails left behind airplanes. Um, Mike, uh, hello and welcome to a public affair. Hi, thanks for having me. So yeah, um, on beautiful days like today, clear blue sky, sunshine, which I just love, I always notice that like 12:30 in the afternoon these airplanes show up and they start crisscrossing each other and they leave behind something that looks like you could play tic-tac-toe on and uh people keep telling me uh this these trails left behind are condensation but I'm 70 years old and I I've been looking at the sky my whole life and I'm I've never seen this until the last three, four years. So I, I was just wondering if, uh, if one of the experts could uh, let me know what, uh, what's going on up there, speaking of climate change. Thanks, Mike. Thank yeah, Chris and Bob, give us the lowdown here. So simply put, if you are running your car on a cold morning and you see exhaust coming out of your, your tailpipe, Similar phenomenon is what's happening at 30, 35,000 feet with airplanes. When you have those massive engines blasting through extremely cold air, that's what jet contrails uh, are essentially. Um, uh, that's what that's what jets produce when they're when they're flying uh, in super cold uh, air, well above their heads. Uh, however, I do want to say quickly, uh, there is an aspect of climate change which is getting a lot more public attention with uh, solar radiation modification and where that science is going, the ethical issues associated with that, and uh, essentially who is funding this research going forward is interesting because that would then alter the Earth's climate by keeping it cool. Uh, when you have uh, even contrails that are, that are um, kind of densely uh, spaced, uh, that reflects some of the sun's energy back out to space, right? So it actually has a cooling effect, so to speak, but to uh, alter the climate is something that we have to really have serious discussions about because who's to say another country wouldn't just start putting aerosols up into the atmosphere to, to change the Earth's climate. 
Um, so I know that's a little bit of a tangent, and, and but I thought that was a good opportunity to talk about an issue that's getting a lot of attention. But Bob, will send it over to you for, for more. Yeah, I, I think, Chris, you pretty well summed it up. Um, you know, I, I don't, the listener was, was probably wondering, I think, is there something more to it than um, planes and, and contrails, which we've been seeing that for ever since jets have been flying in the sky. Uh, contrails are, are, are a product of, of flight. Um, but I don't think there's anything um, more to it than that. I don't think... Um, there's anything insidious going on or that there's anything the government is doing to um, to impact our weather, do, do climate modification, weather modification, anything like that. Just wanted to, to throw that out there, too. So I just want to clarify the, the there is a sense that these this caller was wondering whether these contrails were being used for weather modification and that is a thing that some people have proposed but are not doing is that the case yeah you know he did not come up out and say that so i don't want to put words in the listener's mouth but there is uh there's a community that does believe that there's um modification going on that's not ethical so to speak chris you want to touch no, exactly that, Bob. Um, there are people that, that think that uh, the government is doing things uh, to uh, interfere with our with our daily lives. Um, so, again, that, that isn't the science. It's just a, a simple process of when you have, again, airplanes, the engines and the exhaust essentially in, in air temperatures that are well below zero. That's what happens. And, and my other point was making uh, that there's a possibility that you could geoengineer essentially uh, conditions to help kind of curb some of the impacts of, of climate change. So. Thanks. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. That was Christopher Gloninger and Bob Lindmeyer, two meteorologists talking to us today. You can join the conversation at 608-256-2001. That last question um, kind of brought me back to the beginning of the conversation, Bob, when you were talking about how you envision yourself as in in the role of uh, as educator and Chris, you've you've also um, written about um, what you call climate literacy, um, and I, I want to hear, Chris. Do you imagine yourself as an educator? And then, from both of you, um, a little bit more on that topic. I, I do because so few people have a background in climate science, and it's an opportunity to educate others on climate change and the lack of climate literacy is apparent more than just with the public. There are officials, city officials, uh, county officials, state officials that really uh, there's a knowledge gap that really needs to be filled. And that's what I'm concerned about. And that's kind of the work I do now, transitioning from being a TV meteorologist, explaining it day to day, how weather and climate are connected, connecting the dots between the two to helping inform about projects and why certain projects are important because of, of, of climate change. Um, so I, I do consider myself an, an educator, and I think that it's a role that other meteorologists should be taking seriously. Yeah, and I agree with you entirely, Chris. Uh, the American Meteorological Society um, really encourages uh, meteorologists to educate and broadcast meteorologists. We have this unique uh, podium that we can reach viewers. We're, we're, for many of them, the only scientists they ever have contact with. Uh, we're trusted to a large degree. So it's so important that broadcast meteorologists take that position and speak about climate change. Um, as part of the station scientist committee, I've been, I've been uh, the chair on that committee. That's how important the AMS considers um, this education to be. I mean, we have a special committee that encourages broadcast meteorologists to speak out about about climate change. So it's it's a very, very important role, I think, that we have. I take it very seriously. And um, I really do as much as I can to uh, try to encourage um, other meteorologists, broadcast meteorologists in particular, to speak out about it, especially those that are in what we call red states. 
um, those that are in areas that are not very receptive to to climate uh, science as, as as Chris had to deal with. Um, there there are ways that you can still get the message out, and we and we try to help them do that um, in, in in various ways. Yeah, Chris, um, I want to throw it back to you um, because you've promoted this uh, organization called Climate Matters, and I think that's related to Climate Central, Bob, that you were talking about earlier. Um, what is this resource and how can meteorologists use it? I, it's funny if you look at the, the, the history of it, starting as one meteorologist, Jim Gandy in, of all places, South Carolina. I mean, if you let that sink in, uh, that's how this journey is kind of ebbed and flowed and and i mean you can't really get much more conservative than than parts of upstate south carolina but he effectively talked about climate change on air and now it's a program that has uh, thousands of users across all platforms from tv meteorologists to uh, meteorologists that work for newspapers and radio uh, it is important work and and it's also important to understand that their work is nonpartisan. It's uh, nonprofit work too. So uh, anyone can use their tools and there are tremendous resources. Bob mentioned uh, they are creating content in, in atmosphere now in TV, especially where you have to do more with less. And that's just one tool, one less thing that TV meteorologists need to, to focus on. They can use their graphics, they can use their data, and that can kind of help tell the weather story of the day and connect the dots between extreme weather and climate change. Yeah, it's been a huge game changer for broadcast meteorologists to have this this resource. It's peer reviewed. We we can trust it. We know if we put it on the air, it's accurate. It's backed up. Um, but it's ready made graphics for TV meteorologists to have time to do the research or put together a graphic is tough. Their their days very filled with their day to day duties. So to have that graphic and we can just put it on the air and uh, talk about it has uh, really helped, I think, broadcast meteorologists across the country um, speak about it because the graphics are localized. Uh, they're in Wisconsin, you can, you, we have them for Madison, climate, uh, climate change graphics specifically for Madison, Milwaukee, all the major uh, markets. It's, it's that localized, which is so important as well. That was Bob Lindmeyer and Chris Gloninger talking on A Public Affair, WORT 89.9 FM. Give us a call if you want to join in the conversation at 608-256-2001. We'll put a link to some of those graphics on our website so folks who can't see them over the radio can check them out later. And we do have another caller who wants to hear about the environmental impact of travel. Richard, you're on the air. Oh, hi, this is Richard. I'm, that's not really why I enter my subject, but I want to go back to 9-11. Supposedly, there was a researcher uh, down at University of Whitewater who looked at worldwide temperatures uh, three days prior to 9-11, and then three days after 9-11 when the, um, the flights, of course, were grounded, and then went back to uh, another three days after the flights came back, uh, came back on the air. And it seemed like because of all the lack of flights, the temperatures um, were, were unusual. Did you hear anything about this research? Thanks for your call, Richard. Well, we, saw, we saw something very similar after the COVID lockdowns when travel was shut down. And what's interesting is when you have aerosol emissions, and that's from any CO2 emissions, uh, when you have either planes that are flying, uh, cars, trucks out on the roads, those aerosols help to reflect some of the sun's energy. So there's been some man-made cooling, so to speak, that's kind of countering some of the warming, which is scary to think about, that the warming could even be worse if we cut all of, all of the emissions at once, which we do need to do. But we have to understand that there is some warning, warming that's already baked into that. So yes, there are fluctuations I'm not familiar with that research, but it makes perfect sense to me knowing what happened uh, in, during the, the COVID pandemic and seeing when there was no air travel, what that meant. Uh, so instead of temperatures going down because of CO2 emissions, there were some upticks because of that. There was more of the sun's energy getting through to warm us up. 
Yeah, that's my re recollection too. I don't have, uh, I, I remember there was a change that the lack of contrails in the atmosphere did impact temperatures, but I, I don't remember any of the specifics on that. Well, this makes me wonder um, more about how tools for recording, collecting data on the weather and on the climate have changed over time. And um, Bob, I, I'd want to hear about your experience over your career with weather graphics systems. And then Chris, from you as well, what um, what have some of the major changes been to how you like communicate this information? And then what's on the horizon also? What are some of the exciting things like the attribution science that y'all were discussing earlier? Can we kind of dig into the tools you use? Yeah, just briefly on the on the weather graphics side, I, I was privileged to be part of Weather Central Incorporated, which um, was for a long time one of the major uh, producers and distributors of television weather graphics systems. So I remember when I started in 1980, we had this Apple IIc computer, which was a, one of the first public PCs that people could use, and it was we adapted it to uh, putting. Uh, weather graphics on air. I remember it was very pixely. It, it, you had a low that was just kind of jumping around. It, I thought, why are we putting this on the air? Uh, the, the, the the handmade drawn maps that we considered artwork were a lot better. But you can see where things have gone in in the last 40, over 40 years. Um, now um, we're able to display uh, weather graphics in, in in amazing ways. And so much of the work is, is done for us too by the graphics system. But and the other thing I just wanna to touch on besides uh, the weather graphics systems is just satellites. The, the sophistication of satellites uh, that are out, uh, up in the sky now and sensing uh, the weather and, and, and the climate has just changed so immensely in, in the time that I've been um, a broadcast meteorologist. So I, I'd say the number one thing is, is satellites in, in terms of helping us understand. And that technology is just getting better and better by the day, which is fascinating uh, and exciting. Uh, and you wonder how with weather records extending back in some of our oldest cities in the country to the 1800s, uh, how do we know what happened? And that's where the science is also uh, kind of expanding leaps and bounds. Uh, for example, University of Maine in Orono has an ice uh, researcher who goes and takes ice cores from all over the world. And that is how we're able to understand what the atmosphere was like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago as they analyze those those cross sections of ice, what the atmospheric composition was like then. And using that information, we can get a pretty good understanding of the Earth's global temperatures. And it's funny when people say, oh, well, things were warmer. Well, humans weren't around when we were that warm. Uh, sea level was a lot higher. Uh, and, and for the last several thousand years, our climate has been stable, but that allows us to see that these shifts are not normal. And you can take it another step further and look at ocean sediment as well. That can help fill gaps that ice cores uh, perhaps aren't able to show us. While observational data is critical, that ice and ocean sediment is equally as important to, to help us better understand climate science. Thanks to you both. Um, we have a few minutes left, and if you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 608-256-2001. You're listening to A Public Affair, and I'm your host, Sarah Gabler, on the call with Chris Gloninger and Bob Lindmeyer, Chief Meteorologist, and we're talking about the weather. Um, so we've touched on a number of times in this conversation um, how individuals' viewpoints on the weather um, affect um, your jobs. And then um, we've talked briefly about like the larger ways that um, legislation and climate research can change the future for us. Um, and I want to end with with this discussion on um, responsibility. Um, because it doesn't just lie with changing individual viewers or listeners' viewpoints. I mean, we can point to those organizations and groups who do bear the responsibility for the climate crisis. And um, I want to hear from you both about how your work either 
on air or m- probably more off air um, uh, addresses responsibility. Yeah, I'll just touch on it first. Um, th- there are things that people can do to to help the cause, to get this transition over to from fossil fuels to renewable energy to accelerate faster than it is right now. Um, and I just want to say this, that first of all, if you're wondering what you can do, number one, just have conversations with your family, friends, and neighbors about climate change. It's kind of the elephant in the room. So just talk about it. Get it out in the forefront, I think, is, is important. It's Your vote is very important. Vote for candidates that advocate for climate change solutions. Not only that they believe in climate change, but that they advocate for, for solutions uh, in that uh, in that realm. Also, join an environmental organization. There's many out there. I'm part of Citizens Climate Lobby, but there's many others that uh, you can join, um, the Sierra Club, among many others, that you can get involved and, and, and help make a difference. I mean, Bob literally took up uh, everything I was going to say, <laughs> because that, those are the things, those are the tangible uh, things that we can all do. And, and uh, look, going solar, buying an EV may not be um, financially possible for all people right now. We've come leaps and bounds, and, and you know, with with uh, tax incentive with tax incentives for middle income people, it's possible. But look, we can all show up at public meetings where mitigation and adaptation are being talked about, and and express your interest in these projects, why they're important to you in the community. Unity. That is free to do. That doesn't cost a, a thing. Uh, I was on a family vacation with my wife, my my parents. My dad is is older, and um, we were over in Europe, and and he engaged somebody, a local in Greece, talking about how climate change was affecting the olives, and I couldn't be prouder <laughs> uh, to, to to bring that up in conversation. That is an example of how talking about it makes a difference. Keeping it front and center, having these conversations. Well, we're here to do that on air right now. We have a couple callers lined up. This The phone lines are buzzing right now. Let's go to Janice, who has a question about the the ocean. Janice, can you be brief, please? Thank you. Yeah, I've read uh, lately that the Atlantic Ocean current system is showing early signs of collapse. I guess the distribution of salt and the um, freshwater from uh, Iceland or Greenland. And do you have a comment about whether you believe that's well, some ocean, really some ocean currents are driven just by the temperature gradient, warm, cool water, but this is also driven by density of the water. So when you have ice uh, sheets that are melting, uh, that ice melt can actually uh, affect the, the density of, of the water in the ocean and in turn could help slow the currents down. Uh, a couple of things that I did read recently that the slowing of this current would also be catastrophic, that a, a complete shutdown of the current would obviously be terrible. But what was something that was theoretical for a long time is something that is now possible and scientists are seeing in climate models, which is what concerns me most. Maybe not in our lifetime, but the fact that it's showing it as a scenario is what's concerning. Yeah, and climate scientists there are various things that scare them more than others. And the, the impact that climate change is having on ocean currents is scaring the bejesus out of them. I can say that just from personal uh, conversations. All right. Well, we'd have to have another conversation on that topic. It sounds very fascinating. But we're going to go to Richard, a different Richard than we called before. And uh, you have a question about AI. You're on the air. Yes, hi. Great show. Um, I was wondering about how AI is impacting uh, weather forecasting uh, looking forward. But not only that, uh, historically looking back, extrapolation of data and stuff like that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, that's a very good question. And one that I, that, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, we've been using supercomputers for 50 years. Okay, so, you know, in that realm and supercomputers are getting more and more powerful and advanced, and that's been so important in our understanding of the climate. But I really can't touch on AI per se. I don't know if you have anything there, Chris. I I don't. That is admittedly outside my wheelhouse. (laughs) Good question, Richard. (laughs) 
Another topic for another day, it sounds like. But we have one more caller on our round robin of <laughs> phone calls here at the end of the show. Courtney, you have a question about um, how she or a comment about how you talk to people about climate change. Um, we have one minute. So if you'll be brief, thank you. Yep, my question is that my main challenge in talking to people is not that it's happening, but that it's related to carbon output. And a lot of times they quote the mini ice age, which was, which was a major climate change not related to fossil fuel output. Thank you. Thanks, Courtney. I, I, I didn't quite get that, Chris. I yeah, I'm I'm a little confused by the question. I, I uh, tying that to to climate change or what are you looking to tie courtney to climate change uh it, it's hard when talking to people that aren't down like don't understand climate change not that it's happening they understand that it's happening but to relate it to carbon output and one of the things that is quoted a lot to me is that the mini ice age happened which was like 1300 uh i don't remember what when it was but that was not related to obviously to fossil fuels that's an example of climate changing naturally so I, I don't know how to respond to that. You know, there's a very good book that I recommend, actually a website for people that ask questions that are that are challenging your beliefs. It's called skepticalscience.com. And it's it's an amazing resource. And I encourage all of our listeners to, to look at that. But if you are getting into a discourse with someone that challenges um, the science, you can go to that and look it up and you can have peer-reviewed response for them uh, at your fingertips. And I will jump in. If you go to Climate Central and look up resources, there's a great graphic that shows plotted on the same uh, graph, uh, CO2 levels and global average temperature. And I think there's something that can be said about showing something visually to somebody that can help them better understand that connection between the two as CO2 goes up, temperature goes up. Yeah, and we can link to some of those resources as well. I hope that's helpful, Courtney, to give you some information to share with your friends and folks you talk to. Um, well, Bob and Chris, thank you again for joining me today. My pleasure. I was, uh, I, I was thrilled to be here. Yeah, same, Sarah. Great chatting with you and Bob. Yeah. And for listeners, you can find Bob Lindemeyer on Madison's own WKOW-TV, and you can learn more about Chris's work at weatheringclimate.com. You've been listening to A Public Affair. Thanks to our sound engineer, my man, Andrew Thomas, our producer, Jade Isiri Ramos, our receptionist, Amy, and news director, Sholly Pittman. Douglas Haynes is your regular host of the program, and I'm Sarah Gabler. Up next is Madison Bookbeat. Today, host David Ahrens is in conversation with Greg Mickles, who is retiring this month as the director of the Madison Public Library. Keep it tuned here to your community-sponsored station, WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I can't.